The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Very happy to have you with us again. I hope you had a great summer. Um, very glad to be back with my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great episode ahead. Elliot, over to you to kick it off. Hello, everyone. Uh, good to be back here and uh, great to be back with my co-hosts. And uh, hope you all had a great summer. We have, I think, a very timely topic to discuss today. What we are set to talk about is the cyclicality of Malthusianism. And we're talking about this against the backdrop of people talking incessantly about some of the shortages that the world's experiencing, uh, spike in inflation that's persisted through the summer, and uh, concerns about the ability of uh, certain geographies to procure the necessary uh, energy resources to get through the winter. It's a scary juncture. There are definitely some really big problems. Um, I wanted to introduce a perspective that I was first exposed to um, about a decade ago, maybe a little more. But if you're not familiar with Malthusianism, it was uh, kind of a way of thinking born out of an essay from Thomas Malthus essay was written in 1798 uh, called Essay on the Principle of Population. And Malthus was arguing that populations growing uh, exponentially while food sources are growing um, linearly. And therefore, you'd hit a point where if those two trends persist, population wouldn't have enough food to feed itself. And he argued there is the potential for a population collapse. I might not be summarizing that perf perfectly, but that's effectively my understanding of the angle he took. There have been waves of Malthusianism uh, far before there was Malthus and that have persisted to this day. So I think one of the uh, ideas I'd heard is before the Romans built the aqueduct, there was a fear, you know, they couldn't get enough uh, clean water for cities to live and then move their stuff through. Um, and in the 70s, uh, into the early 80s, perhaps I think the most popular nonfiction book was a book called The Population Bomb, which kind of was put out there by the Sierra Club and argued that the population was growing far faster than uh, was the resource necessary, right? It's again familiar to maintain the population and you face this cataclysmic population bomb, as the book asserted, where the world couldn't support the people there and you'd have this mass, uh, mass casualties that get things back 
in line, but kind of arguing that you'd overshoot to the downside. A book I read uh, when it came out, I think it was like five or six years ago, was Charles Mann's The Wizard and the Prophet. And I thought this was a fantastic perspective that balanced um, two competing perspective against perspectives against one another. Uh, it was basically a biography of two gentlemen, Norman Burlog and William Vogt. And I'm apologizing in advance for perhaps butchering the names. I'll make sure to have them appropriately spelled in the show notes so you could look at what I'm talking about. Burlog helped innovate ways to grow high-yield crops and feed more people. He dedicated his life to finding ways to make crops and their growth more efficient. And he was a critical player in helping feed the world in the post-World War II era, when theoretically we could have been facing a situation where population growth was too swift for the level uh, with which we had been growing the ability to feed people heading into that time. Um, Vacht, on the other hand, as we were reaching some of those constraints, was arguing for more conservationism and restraining population and economic growth in order to prevent collapse. And it's a really balanced book about what drove those two individuals to take the perspective they took, respectively, and why um, you know there is merit to both sides of those debates and how to solve the tensions, perhaps. In the wake of the publishing of that book, I saw New York Times columnist John Tierney interview Charles Mann, uh, the author of the book. And as a slight digression, Charles Mann wrote one of my favorite books, 1492 or 1493, about you know what happened in the wake of Columbus uh, discovering the Americas, or not discovering, but kind of you know unleashing uh, the old, connecting the old and new worlds, if you will, um, and. The book's fantastic. Tierney was a great interviewer. And Tierney was a really interesting guy to do that interview uh, because Mann kind of flipped the tables on him and asked Tierney about one of his own stories that is directly relevant to where we're going with this conversation, or so I hope. Um, what Tierney had done, uh, there was a book called Twilight in the Desert, The Coming Saudi Oil Shock in the World Economy, published in... 19, in 2005 by Matt Simmons. And that book took incredible prominence. Uh, if you'll recall, 2005 to 2008, energy prices absolutely soared. And Simmons' argument was that we were facing peak oil, right? That was a term that was very popular at the time. Uh, and that we'd actually have increasing demand as supplies would fall off a cliff. Um, and therefore, you know, we'd have this really kind of uh, day of reckoning for the global economy. And Tierney in 2005 made a bet with Simmons that by five years forward, the price of crude oil would not close above $200 as measured by WTI. Um, and you know, Tierney had just won this bet when I saw him give this talk or something. Maybe it was shortly thereafter. They, it took a little bit to settle a couple things, but the bet was decisively won by Tierney. And Tierney told the story about how his mentor had introduced him early in life, this notion that every so often you'd hear about how there's some resource that's going to inevitably be constrained and will create a bottleneck on everything else. And 
if you believe that any one resource will curtail um, the ability of humans to keep pushing forward, then that means you're betting against human ingenuity and the ability of humans to make the right choices. And that there's an inherent nihilism and apocalyptic thinking that's as old as time that plays into people's uh, constant reemergence, this constant reemergence and cyclicality of Malthusianism. Um, and Tierney argued, you know, all of us would face multiple epochs in our lives when we'd see the cyclicality of Malthusianism. That's not the term he used, but the reemergence of Malthusianism along the way. And that anytime you get the chance, you should be positioned to bet against it. And that left a very strong impression on me uh, because, you know, I think every so often you've seen something come up. I remember early in my career doing this when people were talking about how we had these shortages of molybdenum and that these rare earth minerals would be a critical bottleneck on everything. And, you know, really a lot of these things, there's way more supply than you'd think. And there are two paths to solving the problem. One is something like fracking is a form of ingenuity where you release new supply. Wind, solar, even nuclear, these are things that we've innovated as humans and have the ability to deploy. Though to some degree, we haven't necessarily made the right choices in how to pursue all these. We've placed restrictions on fracking in some areas where it might be incredibly helpful to solve today's problems. And we've uh, actually you know, made choices against nuclear in areas where there is the ability to use it and prevent some portion of pain from happening right now. Um, so, you know, when faced with problems, we tend to find a way to get through them. And it's been slightly shocking to me to see people feel like today's problems are more insurmountable than COVID just two years ago. And it's like, well, if we got through that, shouldn't we be able to get through this? So I'm going to posit the question to my co-host here. Is it always right to bet against Malthusianism and will hum human ingenuity always win the day? That's a deep one to jump back in here. I guess my first reaction. You're welcome. To yeah, exactly. Wow. We're, uh, just a nice light topic here to ease back into it. Um, my first reaction was that if it's not right, we, you know, nothing else really matters. If the world's eventually going to end, if we're going to, you know, the sun's going to slowly flame out, or if the big one's going to, the big meteor asteroid's going to emerge and, you know, cause a climate wide extinction event or something, you know, that that's kind of that level of, of thought, I guess. So I, uh, look, I think just like everything else, whether it's, this type of stuff or financial doomsayers, like you said, it always pays if you're selling something to sound pessimistic. You sound smarter. It sounds like you're thoughtful. It sounds like you're doing something proactive that's worthy of compensation and the expertise that people are placing, anointing you with. If you're negative, it just is more appealing from that end of thing. If you say like, well, things are going to suck. There's going to be lots of fits and starts and, and there's going to be lots of stagnation and periods of decline. But overall, there's going to be slow, steady, unremarkable progress that's only going to be visible over longer stretches of time. That's not very exciting. That's not very saleable. It doesn't get people all wound up. It doesn't get you likes on Twitter, whatever. So um, I think your point is 100% correct there.
Um, and I think the other point that's really bizarre and interesting and something that I think about a lot is that, you know, you mentioned, you know, this debate, I'm sure, goes back even further than the sources you were talking about. And by the way, I highly recommend all those books. I think uh, The Wizard and the Prophet was actually Charlie Munger's pick at the Berkshire meeting. I don't know, whenever that was, three years ago, maybe, or four years ago. I don't remember exactly when that book came out, but I did read that. And I like 1493 as well. Those were both really deep, interesting books. But, you know, it, and obviously the original goes back to the 18th century. So this stuff goes back a long, long ways. This is not a new worry that people are having. And certainly it's been a worry that has, you know, caused a lot of hand wringing, but not a lot of action. And, and it is exactly that, the ingenuity and the innovation that's continued to power positive progress in, in quality of life and all the things that we, we care about over that period of time. But w- what's the biggest thing that's changed over that period, right? I mean, for the first time in human history, you're going to see sustained and significant population decline just from demographics in the majority of the world's countries in our lifetime, right? I mean, the biggest com- biggest country in the world, China, is already shrinking from a working age population and soon will be shrinking from an absolute population perspective. You're already seeing massive population d- declines in places like Japan and Russia, and it's all but inevitable in, in much of Western Europe. And the only places where it's not going to be the case are in certain places in Asia and and most of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa anyway. And so, you know, that's a huge, huge change. I mean, the the forward estimates of the global population aren't even that reliable. It's pretty surprising if you go back and look at UN population forecasts from even 10 or 20 years ago, they're not very accurate, right? I think they they very much didn't expect this level of a drop in fertility or in the in the birth rate. So but but look once the once the birth rate is what it is, you know, it, it's very very hard to catch back up, right? I mean, it's very possible to say that in 20 years we're going to have, you know, every woman's going to have four child four children, but if that doesn't happen, you can't undo it, right? So to say the least. So we're setting the table for a very strange period in the world. And I think it bodes ill for a lot of things because as we're probably seeing right now, most of the world's conflicts and most of the the wars that we've seen throughout history come from countries and empires and political regimes that are feeling threatened and are facing a period of decline. And as the, as the crest of the wave is approaching and they know that they're about to go over the edge, they lash out, you know, for, for one reason or another. And so that, that does not portend well for, for a global peace, but yeah, look, I mean, as it pertains to all this other, all the other implications here, uh, economically, I'd be really scared in a lot of these cases in terms of, you know, progress and, you know, the ability to feed people and that sort of thing. I, I, you know, I think you have to be optimistic, right? I mean, the, a lot of the progress that's been generated is based on the sharing of human knowledge and it's never been easier to do that. So I guess that's what I would hang my hat on if I'm having trouble going to sleep at night is that we're most of the world is still cooperating. Most of the world is still sharing knowledge and people haven't suddenly gotten dumber. So if we just don't allow our own psychology and psychoses to get in the way, everything 
should work out, <laughs> I hope. Yeah, I guess I'll jump in uh, as well. I think the point on global population trends is is a great one. And I think originally Malthusianism was about uh, what population growth was going to do to our ability to to feed the planet. And so um, the trends there are are actually quite good. In fact, um, I think we might start seeing a population decline as uh, as more of the world kind of uh, gets uh, gets advanced. I mean, in Western Europe, we have population declines in some other places as well. Uh, I, I guess the offset to that is that emerging economies are becoming richer, and as they get richer, they're going to be consuming more, and uh, that does put pressure on uh, agriculture and and, and other uh, resources. Uh, but then there's other um, you know things working uh, against that or offsetting that, and and I think one of the big technology related trends is just that people are spending more time in virtual worlds as opposed to um, the real world. And that may, um, you know, decrease demand for a lot of real world uh, commodities. Um, So it's just really hard to predict kind of um, how demand for some of the things that are, you know, just more constrained in supply uh, is going to evolve. And so I, I don't buy the Malthusian argument um, the basic argument, I think, you know, we're maybe confusing a little bit kind of the core of the Malthusian argument with the fact that we are seeing inflation in a lot of places um, and that commodities are becoming more expensive or a lot of them are. And, I, you know, that doesn't mean that they've become more scarce. It just means that they're relatively more scarce as compared to how much paper money is out there or how much is out there today compared to several years ago or a decade ago. And so, you know, inflation may be sending the wrong signal. There's still enough stuff out there, um, you know, to feed the world, to to power the world. Uh, It's just that you know, we we haven't been disciplined when it comes to um, fiat currency, and that's making it look like um, there's scarcity out there because we're seeing inflation. Yeah, I'll, I'll give another recommendation, Elliot. Have you read along these lines? If you haven't, the new Vaclav Smil book called um, "How the World Really Works." No, it's on my list, and I read yeah. his one, two of his books on energy in the past. Yeah, exactly. So those, it's kind of almost bizarre how prolific the guy can be. I don't know how many books he's written now, but it's a couple of dozen at least, I think. And I've read, I think, three or four of them now. And this one just tries to tackle a lot of these topics. You know, there's there's a whole chapter about energy. There's a whole chapter about food production. And he touches on some of these arguments that that, that you brought up. And, uh, you know, I, I um, he's kind of a polymath scientist. And I, I would not, I think he's well-regarded. I think the footnotes are, thorough and and seemed legit where I tried to spot check things here and there. It didn't seem like he was pulling things out of thin air. There were no howlers. I can usually find, if I look hard enough, I I have a real disorder. I can always find a typo in the newspaper or a factual mistake or a grammatical mistake somewhere here or there. And if I actually check sources, like there's always 
things here and there to quibble with for sure. But I think he's pretty legit on that front. So the the amount of data and numbers and facts that he crams into a few hundred pages is pretty astounding. And he doesn't actually reach any strong conclusions, but I think he would agree with the fact that the only way to ensure that we screw up on this front is to take it for granted. So he he gives a, a pretty strong and robust case for what a miracle some of this prod, this progress has been and how unrealistic it would have been to say like, boy, you know, there's 2 billion people, there's 5 billion people and, and the, you know, per capita quality of life is going to continue to go almost straight up in a linear, if not exponential basis over a period of decades and, and centuries. And, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, I guess a lot of Western economies, the U.S., are guilty of taking that for granted to a certain extent. I think in my lifetime, I don't know how I would prove that, but that seems like something that I think most people would agree on, that there were a, we, we were a little complacent and there was a long period of peace and prosperity that that is not necessarily the norm in human history. So I don't know. I, I would throw that out there as, as a book and an author that I would recommend, though. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. And I do think part of taking it for granted is that no one wants to do anything about visible problems until they become acute. And when you act in that way, you leave yourself vulnerable to having a situation where you act a little too late in a foreseeable, solvable problem. And you know, you might think I'm speaking directly to a present situation. That's because I kind of am. You know, I think for all of this the spring and summer, you could have seen some of the problems emerging for European energy. And yet still, you know, the summit where where it's going to happen tomorrow on on figuring out what to do. Um, you know, why wait till the till your back's against the wall? It's just that much harder to, especially in things where there's like a long lead time, actually get stuff done, get it done when your back's uh, against the wall like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and if you take it for granted, there's no way, right? I mean, that's what I was trying to get at that you probably said better than I did was just, you just can't leave this. Oh, of course the gas is always going to flow and the electricity is always going to be there when I flick the switch. Right. I mean, I I'm thinking specifically now just to the U S I've harped on this before, but you know, the underinvestment in the, in the power grid, the electricity grid in the United States is just criminal, right. And to a certain extent, almost an equal extent, the investment in the, in the water infrastructure in the U S has just been criminally neglected. And, you know, that's how you get into a real problem. Now, those are fixable, but they're expensive and time-consuming fixes, and it's not good. The grid from Bill Gates recommendation list yeah, a I few read, years that, ago. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah, Great one. Agree. Very wonky. You know, it was very, it was very much written as a, uh, a deep, exhaustive treatment by a subject matter expert, but uh, you could certainly skim that in an hour and pick up the the big terrifying ideas there for sure. And there are solutions uh, that are, uh, you know, I think it takes crisis to fix and I'll get to one of them, which is that, you know, building a more decentralized grid uh, with fewer points of failure leads to much greater resiliency. And I know in my area, it took Hurricane Sandy causing some devastation for people to finally be like, okay, we should actually do something about this and make it a little different. <laughs> but then yeah. there are also all these like perverse incentives that you start encountering 
um, we were getting a street paved near us and had asked the power company to bury our line instead of leaving it above ground. And the uh, assessor who came out to judge whether they should or shouldn't do it was like, I can tell you right now it's going to be rejected because it's actually profitable for the companies here to have power go out in storms because FEMA pays them more money than it costs to fix it. <laughs> Interesting. So that, that, that's one of the problems with willingness to do things when you actually you know, can prevent problems. Uh, incentive structures matter too. It does. Yeah. I mean, look, the National Flood Insurance Program is a, is a great example of that, right? I mean, there are you know, literally millions of dwellings, individual homes and condos and whatnot built along the coast of, and again, this is just a U.S. issue, but uh, the same holds true elsewhere, where the, these, these structures would be, they wouldn't exist because they wouldn't be insurable and no one could afford the risk to live there if they weren't all subsidized. And, you know, anytime you get a massive federal subsidy uh, on that kind of thing, you're you're prone to having some weird, wacky, non-economic behaviors take place. And, you know, to your point about, I didn't know that about the electric utility thing from FEMA. That That, that is probably true from what I recall of, I, I used to know that industry better, but it's certainly true um, when it comes to flooding. I mean, the city of Houston, I think, has had something like 15 or 16 federally declared disasters just in the last 20 years. And I think 12 of them were flooding related. There was a winter storm thrown in there too. But every time these, you know, properties and, and businesses and buildings flood, they just get rebuilt on the same thing. And they not only never fix it or address the problem, you exacerbate it by encouraging that, that sort of behavior. It's, it's pretty bonkers. I like when we get you to weather topics, Phil. <laughs> well, yeah, you can always make it. It's like the evergreen topic. You can always tie everything back to that if you try hard enough. It's true. And, uh, you know, I just want to go back to something you said earlier. I think it was a great point on population decline, and it has really interesting ramifications for society, despite Elon Musk, like single handedly trying to change that. Um, <laughs> you know, what happens in a world where, like, um, We've had pretty abundant labor. What happens when labor is the scarce good? You know, how much more automation do you need to get the same amount of productivity out there? And um, I don't know, maybe it, it creates different kinds of incentives for an economy and what the consequences of growth are, right? Part of the point of growth is being able to support population growth. Uh, if a population is shrinking, are pro growth, growth poli policies necessary? in the same way, right? Because uh, GDP per capita would inherently rise to the degree that population is atrophying. Um, so you start optimizing for a different variable. And I don't know what that would look like, but I've definitely seen some interesting pieces lately on the countries that will, in our lifetime, face some pretty severe declines in their population. If you have any, I'd be curious to read any of those. I haven't read it a lot on it that I thought was worthwhile because I think it's it's also speculative and it's also hard. I, look, I don't think there are many hard and fast predictions here that are going to hold much water, but I think one thing we could all agree on was that the world has never seen this problem before. We've seen the decline and fall of empires, and that generally doesn't go well for their citizens or their economies, but uh, we've not seen whole regions, whole parts of the world that just see, like I said, this sort of natural uh, demographic decline where the population just shrinks. And I think the 
order of all economies, whether they're socialist, communist, capitalist, doesn't really matter. Uh, they're all predicated on a different model that doesn't entail population declining periodically or, or, or you know, in a straight line over a period of time. Um, you know, we've seen that in, in this part of the world. I mean, look at look at what's happened in in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, where the, you've seen elements of that, and it does start to feed on itself in a way, and it it becomes difficult. It becomes a real challenge, and um, it's I, I don't have a lot of a lot of great answers there. What do you guys think are the investment implications of this, if any? I mean, are we looking at more of the world becoming like a Japan in terms of, you know, demographics uh, influencing the economy? I would say that if we get a Japan-like outcome, that would be a huge win for anyone that that gets that and they should all sign up and, and take it. Because I think, and I, I should double check this, this number, but I, I believe it's true that per capita Japanese production and in all senses of the word, standard of living has continued to improve over the last 10, 20, 30 years, even though we're well past the peak of the population, we're well past the peak of the prior, you know, high water mark of this Japanese stock market and a lot of individual asset values. So the Japanese economy has continued to do very well in the sense that it's gotten more productive, it's continued to be innovative, it's moved forward, it's improved people's lives. But it's come with plenty of challenges, and you know the the Japanese people and the, its companies and the economy at large have adapted to those quite well. I mean, if you visit Japan, it's certainly not like the whole place is falling apart and and going to hell. Um, and, and I think that's there will they will have a far better example and have acquitted themselves far better than a lot of other countries would have. But um, you know, I, I think it's just going to be harder. Look, I think so many people, particularly in Western economies like the U.S., have looked at the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, depending on their age, and said, yeah, of course, everything grows and everything goes up and everything gets better. And there are just some very brief but temporary setbacks that aren't really all that painful. And you just have to buy the dip and, and hold on. And that may not hold true. I think one important question to ask about a country like Japan in contrast to some other countries that may inevitably, oh, that will inevitably face uh, demographic headwinds is this notion that, and I think it's one of the big tensions in Europe, uh, population would have been declining in some of these countries had they not been pro, uh, more, more open to immigration. And so you do have parts of the world where population growth is actually a problem and a constraint on the resources available to those country countries, which encourages people to seek greener pastures. Um, and, you know, that could be an increasing source of opportunity or tension, depending on how certain other uh, facets shake out. And so you definitely hear rhetoric about it that's quite uh, conflicting on both sides of the political aisle too, because there are certainly ramifications on that front. Um, and, you know, I do think that's something that we all, uh, have been, I think a little more, um, have seen become a little more front and center in our countries in recent years as a source of debate. 
Um, so it's not quite as simple merely as your population's declining because we are uh, part of the world and there are people that are always, that, that in aggregate, it's not declining. Um, so yeah, I don't know the exact answer. I do think, John, you said something very interesting earlier about the virtual worlds. One of the other, one of the books I read this summer was uh, Matthew Ball's Metaverse. And it's interesting to think about that as a way to escape some of life's problems, but also as an opportunity to like experience a world where scarcity is not a problem, abundance is an opportunity. And so long as you're being fed, you know, you could kind of participate in that and not necessarily care about the same material comforts. I don't know. Uh, I don't know, but it's definitely, definitely interesting. Um, and I think that was, that was an interesting, uh, element you brought into this, uh, conversation. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of, I've read parts of, I haven't, the, the new book, the Met, that's what the book's called, the metaverse and whatever the subtitle is, right. I've read some essays and excerpts that, that he's written. And it just reminds me of when my oldest son was little, he really liked the movie Wally, the Pixar Disney movie, which is like this dystopian, horror movie where like it's for kids but it like the we basically far in the future have ruined planet earth and we have to leave and float around on these spaceships but everybody's fed and fat and happy and it's it's really depressing but he he really liked it when he was like six and um that's kind of how i feel about the metaverse it's just very strange and doesn't seem all i mean could be really fun for some stuff like you know playing certain games and whatever but i don't know anyway uh back to your prior point which i think is a really good one there are huge areas of opportunity tying into what you said, Elliot, about population growth and immigration and John, what you said about the investment implications. I mean, look, if you could find somebody to be the uh, Bill Browder, you know, in his early days or Lee Lu, uh, respectively of Russia and China and, and navigate the local perils and hopefully avoid, uh, you know, the world getting turned on its head and a total disregard for contracts and property law. I mean, the, the places that I would like to go searching for ideas would be places like Nigeria and Indonesia, because those are places that are sort of demographically baked into growing like crazy. Their economies, by definition, are either going to get way bigger and be way more productive and find a way to meet the needs of their exploding populations, or there's going to be hell to pay. And along the way, there's going to be, I would assume, quite a bit of out-migration, just as you've seen from certain neighboring countries over the years, um, just because that would seem logical that that certain sub-segments of that population will seek to go abroad to to live and to work. And so um, there's going to be natural flows there of people coming and going and trade and economic progress coming and going across various landscapes because, you know, even a place like the U.S., I mean, in the last decade, you know, and take COVID out of it. So ending in in 2019, I mean, the, the U.S. population was very, very flat. There was very little growth and it was almost entirely migration. I believe the native born population would have shrunk slightly if it wasn't for immigration, which has never happened since the founding of the United States, I think. So, um, it's going to be pretty crazy. And then you look at the far other end of the spectrum. You know, like I said, the only real places to to go for that kind of growth that we're accustomed to seeing are, are places like Sub-Saharan Africa and, and Southeast Asia and, and that sort of thing. So if I could find somebody that could navigate those 
worlds and I'm not one of them, um, that would be a pretty obvious place to look for investment ideas. Okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there. I'm not going to have any specific uh, stock ideas here, but I think the discussion uh, is is very helpful. Thank you so much, uh, Phil and Elliot. And I hope everyone uh, listening enjoyed it as well. Phil, did you have a final? No, that's it for me. I wish I had more concrete conclusions and recommendations, but uh, it's more food for thought. All right. Elliot, you? Yeah, I always like when we end with questions and thinking. So uh, if you have ideas out there listening, hit us with them. Yeah, please do. And uh, we'll uh, look forward to uh, chatting again soon. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.